0: Hi, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Harry Kim on Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Commentary Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And Max is not with us again today. He actually is on another away mission, but uh, this time he's he's on um, Seti Alpha Five. So we're hoping that it doesn't spin out of orbit and that we can pick him up next week. But we'll see how that goes, depending on you know Seti Alpha Six and what, what's going on with that. It's a whole big thing. But
1: <laughs> well, man, he's a survivor. I, he we'll, is a, we'll see. He's a survivor. We'll see him soon. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he'll be like those eels, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this week is part five in our series on Jerry Taylor as a producer, a writing producer, in which we are going to look at her fourth television series, In the Heat of the Night. Uh, Okay, so Magnum P.I. ended in 1988, I believe? Yes. Yeah. So so that ends in in the spring of 1988. And after that, Jerry Taylor joined the writing staff of In the Heat of the Night, which was entering its second season. Uh, The show was created by James Lee Barrett, who has written a lot of stuff. Probably most notably, he was the writer of The Green Berets and Smokey and the Bandit.
1: Two excellent entries into film lore right there. (laughs) Absolute classics.
0: It kind of makes a lot of sense, uh, all things considered. Yeah. Um, first, that Green Berets and Smokey and the Bandit are written by the same dude. And second, <laughs> that that he would be writing the In the Heat of the Night TV show. Yeah, it um,
1: works. It works.
0: The show was based on a movie, uh, which was directed by Norman Jewison. Uh, it won Best Picture at the Oscars in 1967. It starred Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. And Norman Jewison, of course, is a uh, very well-renowned filmmaker, having directed tons and tons of movies like Thomas Crown Affair and Rollerball, not to be confused with John McTiernan, who also directed Thomas Crown Affair and Rollerball. And he directed Fiddler on the Roof and uh, The Hurricane. He won the Irving Thalberg Award from the Academy for, like, lifetime producing achievements and everything like that. I mean, he's a massive, massive um, name in the world of film. And that movie, which the TV show is based on, is based on a book by John Ball, which I don't really know much about. But the show was going for about a year when Magnum ended and David Messinger, who was a writer-producer who was basically, at this point in time, a showrunner, kind of, on his own. Like, he's the guy who uh, created Blue Thunder. He was working on Quincy and also on Magnum P.I. and in in a very high-up sort of position on the writing staff. If he wasn't the head writer, he was very close to that. And Taylor was essentially his writing partner and would later go on to to marry him and because of that you know i i get the impression that taylor was sort of you know following him around or the two of them were sort of like a package deal you know they were a team And while they would write their own episodes, they would also write a lot of episodes together. Like they wrote the pilot to Blue Thunder together, and Mm -hmm. they wrote the first two episodes of their season of In the Heat of the Night together. As far as I can tell, Messinger was the the showrunner of In the Heat of the Night during season two. Um, He was the executive producer. Taylor was just a producer. And in addition to writing the two-part premiere with Messinger, she also wrote one more episode by herself. But first off, let's, let's talk about the movie a little bit. Now, you, you haven't seen
1: In the Heat of the Night, the film, right? No, I haven't, uh, which is, it's one of those movies where, like, you always go back and you're like, oh, I should go catch that, and then you just, for me, it's one of those ones I've always intended to, but never gotten around to, sadly.
0: Yeah, you know, I had not seen it either up, up until about uh, four hours ago. When I watched it, um, because <laughs> I, I figured it's one of those movies that, like you're saying, you you need to see, you know, best picture winner, considered to be very groundbreaking at the time and everything like that. And I it just always kind of fell through the cracks for me. And I knew that sooner or later I would need to see this movie. So I might as well just watch it now in preparation for this thing. And I'm glad that I did because it's really interesting. And the differences between the, the movie and the show are also really interesting. You know, The movie was made in 1967. In fact, there's even a scene in this movie where you see a calendar in the background and the days on the calendar are X'd out. Hmm. And based on, on that calendar, this movie takes place the week that Star Trek premiered in September of 1966.
1: So it was a time so of just, great change for everybody. It really it was. It really, it was. really you know, the whole time stuff.
0: The, the whole time I kept on thinking, like, you know, it involves this murder. And I'm like, man, this poor guy, he saw the man trap, and that's it. <laughs> I felt so bad for him. And and all these people, well, they were so angry and, and mad at each other. And I'm just like, guys, just calm down. We got Star Trek now. It's all good, you know?
1: Star Trek just... will teach us to come together and get along. Exactly, yeah. you know?
0: Uh, the, the movie is basically about uh, a small well, I don't know if it's a small town. Sparta, Mississippi. Yeah, it's small. Like it's I'm, small
1: townish. Yeah, yeah small townish
0: definitely. in the deep south of America. And uh it takes place in nineteen sixty-six and um racial harmony is not exactly a big thing in in those parts.
1: They did not embrace diversity back then. Not really, parts of the no world.
0: <laughs> and There is a murder of a very rich uh, white guy who is going to be um, developing land and, and, you know, building industry in that uh, town. And he's murdered. And when the police start uh, kind of scoping out the area and looking for suspects, they see a black guy sitting at the train station in like in the middle of the night. And he's just sitting there, like, wearing a suit and tie and everything like that, and they arrest him and take him in for questioning, and they find out that he is actually a homicide detective from Philadelphia. And after clearing that up, they decide that since this is a small town which doesn't see a lot of murders, and they don't really know much about investigating murders, that it might be a good idea for them to enlist his help in solving this crime. So... The whole movie is this sort of like tug and tug of war uh on the part of really the the police department and the town where they really don't like this guy mainly because he's black but at the same time they know that they need him in order to solve this crime and uh it's really interesting, you know, I mean, it really sort of, you know, gets into race relations of the time yeah. and everything like that. And you watch it and you're like, wow, this is really messed up. I can't believe that this is actually a thing that happened. And then you look at the news and you're like, oh, wait a minute, this is still going on today in a big, bad way. That's actually really freaking terrifying. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> people are flawed. They are. Yes. Very, they are <laughs> limited the people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, that's very different from the show. I mean, I guess I will just say, back up and say that the movie is very good. I highly recommend it. Definitely check it out. Is it worthy of Best Picture? Probably not. But at the time, I could see why it, it, it would be um, kind of groundbreaking and noteworthy. So um, the TV show, which was made a good 20 years later, yeah, is very different in a lot of ways, mainly in tone. Still the same town, and I don't know exactly how they set up the, the premise, but, but the idea is basically that this guy, um, Mr. Tibbs, uh, who was played by Sidney Poitier in the, in the movie, is a person who was from Sparta, Mississippi originally, which is the same as the movie. He moved up to Philadelphia and became a big-shot detective. And now he has come back to Sparta, Mississippi, and he's working as the head detective in this town. Right. So he's actually part of the police force in the show. Yeah, And while there is definitely still racial tension going on, it's not like everyone in the town wants him dead. It's just sort of like you know, that scaled back by a substantial amount.
1: It's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, throughout the show racial undercurrents, but it's much more subdued. It's much more what you would, you know, in, in a sense, even though it's still there, it's one of those things where if you're looking for the positive point of view, you can say, well, even the show acknowledges that while it's still far from perfect, there's been some sort of progress in a couple of decades where yeah. you know the 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 it didn't make the presumption that nothing had changed since the sixties. It made allowances right. for some cultural forward movement. Right.
0: And I think that even you know, no matter what, in order to make this into a TV show, you would kinda have to do that because I don't see how you could sustain The uh, the tension which is Mm -hmm. in that show over the span of uh, an eight season long television series it just wouldn't work you know I mean there's no way that they could do that you know to have these two people working together because in the movie it's kind of like they're working together technically speaking but basically they're both trying to achieve this goal and trying to avoid working together as much as they possibly can. Whereas in um, in the show, you know, there, there's like a whole thing in the episodes that we watched, uh, which were the first two episodes of season two. Don't look mm-hmm. back. Um, kind of the B plot of of that uh, episode is that there's a lot of people in the community who are thinking that uh, the character of Tibbs, the the black detective, should be in the running to replace Gillespie, the white police chief as police chief and the tension comes more from in in someone under the chief's uh, command sort of challenging his authority instead of you know like a a black man challenging a white man's authority
1: right it's it's not viewed as as like a racial tension thing so much as a you know we work together and i'm the boss and you remember that i'm the boss that like there the you're absolutely right the conflict between them in the episodes is not does not feel racially uh tinged it's addressed by the young uh black rookie cop who it, they because they do have that scene flat out where he says that Sparta isn't ready for a black police chief whether it's you or whether it's me yeah. um so that's the scene where that's addressed but they very much, uh, Gillespie is never presented as having a racial component to his resistance to Tibbs. It's purely, I'm the police chief, and I'm going to stay the police chief. Right. And even when um, the,
0: I don't know, city of councilman or alderman or whoever it was, brings up the idea to Tibbs and says, you know, hey, what, do you, what would you think about becoming a police chief? You know, Tibbs is like, why why would you want to get rid of Gillespie? He's a good guy. He's a good chief, you know. Right. He he does his job well. Whereas in the movie it's not that's not the case. You know, I mean there is sort of an element in the show where um Tibbs is constantly saying like I have a plan for how to bring this, you know, uh police uh um what is it called? Police oh, uh police pre- department. It's not a precinct. Police department. department. There you yeah. go the big words you know i kind of trip up on them occasionally (laughs) he's like i've I've got a plan to bring this police department into the 20th century and everything like that you know you guys are way behind on your procedures and everything and but it's more of like them just being small town kind of stuff and that's there too but there's also sort of this thing where he's like in the movie you know i'm not you know i'm not going to even try to to help you guys out with this thing I'm going to do my job I'm going to do it without your assistance because you guys are a bunch of morons and the whole thing with, with the chief is he does not respect Tibbs mm-hmm. he's using Tibbs he's like this guy knows more than me and I'm not going right. to be able to do this without him Right. and uh, when when push comes to shove you know sometimes literally I'm not necessarily going to back him you know at some point enough's enough and i'm more concerned with uh the image and the public reaction than i am with actually getting the job done you know right so so that's that's a very different characterization um than than in the show but it's a different time it's a different medium and they're telling different stories um kind of watered down stories i guess
1: now well- I mean, over the history of the show, they still dealt with racial stuff, but they just removed it from the main characters conflict because they they Mm -hmm. really did like over the history of the show. It's not like I I didn't I wasn't the target market for the show, um, you know, in terms of like its target demographic or anything. But I did watch a few episodes here and there when it was first run and they there, there were shows where they definitely brought to a head the uh, the the more racial components of being in the Deep South and being black, uh, but yeah. by and large they removed it from that that main relationship.
0: Yeah. Now, now, as someone who has seen episodes of the show earlier and everything like that, and who has sort of an idea of what uh, the show is on the whole, uh, what what are your thoughts on it? Do you do you enjoy it or?
1: I mean, it's, I never had anything against it. It just wasn't, you know, when it was on, I was, uh, you know, gosh, 88, I, w- I was getting ready to go into high school. And so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really the target, uh, demographic for that. I was watching MTV and VH1 back when they played music videos and stuff like that. And, uh, so in the heat of the night was something that would, ac- I would occasionally happen across and be like, Oh, eh, Okay. You know, or it would be on in the background and my dad would be watching an episode or something like that. And it was a, but it was a decent show. It always was a decent show. And it always, I remember at the time, it would always blow my mind to watch Carol O'Connor speaking. And what I came to learn was a much more natural accent for him mm. because it was yeah. watching Archie Bunker be this, you know, deep south cop. I was like, wait, no, that's Archie Bunker. Why? Wait, no. <laughs> but he was actually, he, he's really good in the role. And I I remember thinking that even back then, I was like, wow, he's a great actor to have convinced the world that he was Archie Bunker and then to play this role so convincingly, Carol O'Connor, he really had the chops. He really knew what he was doing on TV.
0: Yeah, for sure. And in fact, in this season, season two, uh, O'Connor won the Emmy for Best Lead Actor in a Drama. So...
1: Yeah, well-deserved. Well well-deserved, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. And just to kind of, I guess, put it into Star Trek context in terms of time, Season 2 of In the Heat of the Night parallels Season 2 of Star Trek The Next Generation. That was both the same year. So these uh, these two shows basically aired uh, simultaneously. Which is very strange because, and as much crap as we give Next Generation for the way it looks and the way it feels and how it feels old, this thing feels older. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, it does.
1: doesn't, uh, it, now while, while I have problems with the video transfer onto the, uh, onto the discs, um, this, this show definitely does not visually age particularly well, the, This is one of those shows where you can really see in the time capsule sense how far just television cinematography has come in the last, you know, couple of decades where it's like, wow, this this used to be this, you know, like among the gold standard. You know, this was a show with a budget that knew how to light things and you compare it to stuff you see now that's just throwaway stuff and you're like, wow, there is a huge difference here. Like the tech it's like has the film. Changed.
0: The film is all grainy and, and yeah. kind of washed out. I think a lot of it also, you know, says something about the the, the ability to transfer film to video and how much that has changed. I mean, oh, we're yeah. seeing that with these these next generation sets and how much better the, the picture quality looks on these new HD things. And it's like, yeah, they they haven't quite gone back yet and done a. a of film film out remastering of In the Heat of the Night. But I'm sure with the success of Next Generation, that'll be right around the corner.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, Jerry Taylor worked on both. How could you? There should be the Jerry Taylor remastering uh, praxis wave that goes out and affects all of her shows.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's coming. You know, that's yeah. what they're going to work on next. And then they'll go to Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I had better do that. <laughs> so don't look back. The second season premiere, um, in a lot of ways, sort of the pilot for uh, the Taylor and Messinger season, their, their little arc or whatever, um, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, do you want to give sort of a synopsis of, of what happened in these episodes?
1: Sure. Uh, in these episodes, which I believe aired as a single two-hour movie when they first came out, I think, I think that's how they opened the second season. Uh, in this, there, it opens with a murder back in the back in the '60s in Sparta, where a young girl's heart is removed, um, and then it fast forwards uh, to the quote-unquote present day, and uh, a similar murder happens, and you go through the usual range of suspects. Of you have the Carney people who should never be trusted, uh, and he is under suspicion, and then you have the um, the local voodoo priestess, which is okay, all right, um, and you have uh, the guy who was suspected but never proved, and they convicted somebody else, but Gillespie never really let it go and always had his eye on him. Though those many decades, in the course of the episodes, Gillespie gets uh, a message sent that you know it is a threat to him and. There are various threats sent out. And the newspaper archives, there are a couple of uh, pages of the newspaper from the era of the original murder that are missing and that are later used to send a message to, uh, to the police department. And then at the end, you get sort of the, I'll call it the typical TV resolution where the ending you think you get is not the, they basically do a head fake and then introduce a sort of O. Henry ending uh, for who really did it, and um, there you go. Yeah, they kind of got me with the the head fake, you know,
0: because it, it they caught the guy, and I'm like, that's dumb and random. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, so now this is the end of the show. And then there's another scene. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, why, why are we having another scene here? What's going on? And then they, yeah. they, they do the, the big finale. And I thought that was kind of interesting, um, you know, and fine, you know, whatever. Yeah. What, what did you think about the episode?
1: Oh, it's good. I mean, I, you know, the, with shows like this, you know, I, I might have had my little quips, you know, a, a couple of minutes ago about how the, visually it doesn't hold up and everything, but it's a well written show. It is. You know, it, it, it's a bit formulaic. Uh, by but that's sort of a modern day nitpicky look at it it's interesting it held my interest through the you know through all two hours I you know I was interested I wanted to see where it was going and I you know I enjoyed it at the very least I enjoyed the acting where whatever flaws there might have been with the overall arc the acting was good enough to carry it and I You know, you, you mentioned how Carol O'Connor won an Emmy for this season. You can see it just in these two episodes. You know, he really brings it and is a great anchor to the show. And you believe him, you know, through the entire thing. And I think that gives you the emotional connection that you need.
0: Yeah, I, I agree that it is um, pretty decent. You know, I mean, it, it is very, very much like any of these sort of uh, police procedural shows, you know, where there's a mystery, and they need to solve the mystery using police work, and there's the red herrings, and the blah, 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 blah. And, I mean, as far as that's concerned, there's nothing groundbreaking here which puts it over the top, but it is sort of very um, methodically well-made, I guess. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. I was kind of hoping that we would find something which sort of, like, made this Seem very tailory, and there wasn't. And I think the reason for that was because it really is sort of a pilot, like the the Blue Thunder pilot, where it's um, establishing a baseline for the show. You know, I mean, these these were two people who were coming on to this show who had not worked on season one, and they were trying to get their feet wet and trying to establish their own sort of voice and everything. Um, which would work for what they were trying to do. And because of that, you don't see the sort of deviations from the formula that you might find in, say, the other episode that Taylor wrote, uh, which came two episodes later, you know. So that was kind of disappointing to me. But on the whole, I did think it was uh, pretty decent, pretty well made. But I kind of also wonder, you know, having seen now a lot of Taylor stuff, and seeing sort of like the through line or the through lines in um, her work. This feels to me more like it was David Messinger writing with an assist from Taylor as opposed to this being like a Taylor show, you know?
1: The one counterpoint I would offer to that is that uh, the diner owner, in this uh, I believe was introduced in this episode uh, who was uh, Gillespie's love interest basically from this point forward. Mm -hmm. I think that you could latch onto her as maybe a signature Taylor character uh, because you roll it back to Quincy and you have Quincy's girlfriend come in and she becomes that, that very sensible mature woman who presents the, the, the main male character that opportunity to really think things through, who presents that logical counterpoint to him and is more of a partner in the relationship, at least in terms of intellect, than maybe you're used to seeing on it with TV females up to that point. There's a scene where they're talking at the carnival and she helps him think through something, much like uh, Quincy's girlfriend did, where she, you know, she helped him put things in context and think through from point a to point B and work through a couple of things. Now I might be grasping because you know, I'm looking for that thread, but I, I would say that you could probably latch onto that. If you really want to latch onto a tailor thread, the strong woman who is a good partner to the, the main male character. I, I would say that that's a, a tailor characteristic that you could look for in these shows.
0: Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I, I could see that too. You know, and and also one of the things that I was kind of thinking about while watching this, and in particular watching his interaction with her, was that it does have that Taylor thing of sort of being about middle aged people. You know, not being afraid to have characters over the age of fifty in in your show. Mm-hmm. And that is something which, you know, maybe maybe it's something that I'm just looking for, kind of like what you were saying, because of things which I've heard about, you know, Taylor and, and what she would talk about with Next Generation and bringing on older crew members and saying, like, why do they all have to be 25? Right. You know, and um but but, you know, you do see that here. You see it in, in all of her stuff, you know, going back to Quincy. So that, yeah, that that could be a Taylor influence there. Well, that wouldn't be so much of a Taylor influence, I guess, as it would be, um, a reason why Taylor would want to work on this show. But another thing, which I I could see as a Taylor influence potentially would be the younger uh, character that they seem to have brought in in this episode as well. The new, uh, recruit, the rookie Mm -hmm. and just sort of like where he's coming at things and stuff like that. That was sort of an interesting foil, which is something which does seem to be present in all of the stuff that Taylor does with these older characters. You have like a younger character in there too who sort of acts as, as a mirror to, to these older characters mm-hmm. and presents, you know, a different perspective. And uh, I imagine that she was going to do some rather interesting things with him as well, which is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, he's an interesting um, counterpoint to uh, Tibbs. Tibbs is Mm -hmm. the guy who's working within the system for change and uh, like their first set of conversations is Tibbs trying to temper his fire. You know, hold back there, young stallion. There are ways you can go about this to get what you want.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was one other episode that Taylor wrote, like we mentioned. It was called The Hammer and the Glove. Uh, It was the fourth episode of the season and it was... About, from what I can see reading the, the synopsis on online and everything, basically, Tibbs' former partner, I'm assuming from Philadelphia, comes to town and says, Hey, I have my own private detective service, and I think that you should join me. And then there's some conflict with uh, their wives and all this other stuff, and I don't exactly know what the the full story was, but... That to me seems like if we could see that episode, which we can't because it's not available due to uh, clearance issues and rights issues with music or something like that. um, I think that if we were to watch that episode, we'd be able to see um, sort of more of what uh, Taylor brought to the show. But what can you do? Yeah. Um, One thing that I will note here just for the sake of whatever is that... um, the Hammer and the Glove, that, that other episode was nominated for the American Cinema Editors Eddie Award for best edited television show. So, yay, Hammer and the Glove, I guess.
1: They better bring it to disk. Come on, man. <laughs> what petty arguments keep these great episodes from us? That's bothersome. I know. What can you do? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, a- any uh, final thoughts on the show?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, it's it's a show that maybe it should have been more groundbreaking than it was, but in terms of a a good drama, I kind of watched it with an eye toward cuz you mentioned it as a, you know, a police procedural uh earlier and it is. You know, you you look at it in terms of how police procedurals are now and the one thing I was grateful for cuz you know, I, I watched another episode or two besides these the one thing you're really grateful for and you get a respect for is you know maybe this is gonna make me sound like an old man but you know the show takes its time it gives you character moments it doesn't feel the need to have a bunch of insane camera shots or effects or unnecessary deep explanations of legal processes it is a show that's more concerned with the drama than the uh, gritty police details of how you need to go about legally getting a criminal. It's about the characters more than it is about the technology. And po- police procedurals now are, you know, CSI and NCIS, they're all about the technology and, and, as opposed to the, the characters behind them.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. And while they have a lot of, you know, flash and some really cool style, there isn't really much going on in terms of the story in a lot of instances, which is too bad. Uh, For me, you know, I I did enjoy the show, and it was weird. I Like, I I wonder what would have happened if I would have watched the movie first. Because Mm. as it stands, I watched the show first, and I was like, hmm, this is interesting. This is nothing that I would ever, you know, watch on a regular basis or anything like that. But I can't say that it's bad. Um and then I watched the movie and I'm like, oh man, the movie was working on a completely different level. And you know, I, I can see total I mean now, you know, with like HBO or something like that, you could do the sh the, the, the movie as oh, a series. Sure. Oh sure. But but back then there there was no way. And it just, it really did sort of feel like a watered down version of the movie. I get the impression that if I had watched the movie first and then watched the show, I would have been like, no, no. <laughs> but, but you know, being able to look at it sort of without that bias, yeah, I, I definitely would say that this is a good show. You know, there's stuff in here which which is worthy of, of attention, um, but it's not anything that I would ever tell anyone to rush out to see or anything like that. There's a lot of stuff out there which is better a lot of police procedurals and everything like that um so you know what can you do watch true detective instead
1: (laughs) i still have to see that it's uh, it's
0: amazing i mean i know everyone's been saying that and it's it's like the one show which i'm actually i actually watched as it aired but that show is amazing so It's
1: it's available for rental now from uh netflix or something right Get it. Yes. Get okay. it. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, wine in the sand, I refuse to pay for HBO. So. Fair enough. Fair this enough. Is me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we leave, there's some Star Trek creator news which has been going on this ah, week. I'm,
1: yes.
0: I'm sure most people have heard about this. Roberto Orsi is no longer directing Star Trek 13. Uh, This came as a bit of a shock, especially since, uh, theoretically speaking, they were going to start shooting it in February. What does this mean? I don't know. (laughs) I don't think that anyone really knows yet, right? But You
1: usually don't fire your director when pre-production is this far along by this point. That's kind of surprising.
0: And the big question, you know, is was he fired or was he um not fired did he leave himself i mean there was a lot of criticism of him taking on the job in the first place since he had never directed anything before there are a lot of people who were like how dare he come in on such a large movie and think that he can you know make a movie of this scale and and when he hasn't even directed an episode of one of his tv shows before mm-hmm. and i mean i guess there's something to that but my uh take was always like it's not your money. Why do you care
1: what scale he directs on? I mean, if it fails, yeah. it fails, but, you know? Well, I think that because of the anniversary, everybody is just has such high hopes for the next one. You know, like, people embraced the Renot boot in uh, 2009, and then, of course, there was the split, but, you know, within the fan base about Into Darkness. I think everybody, though, is hoping... You know, because this is supposed to coincide with the 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants this one. You know, you got to knock this one out of the park, guys. This is the special one. This is the one where we should all, this is our kumbaya moment as Star Trek fans to come together. I wonder, you know, given the fact that I know that the guy is, you know, he embraces certain conspiracy theories. (laughs) You know, did he pee in somebody's Wheaties? and you know like say something and the person was like you you're insane get off this project or you know was he trying to take it in a direction like did they have a draft I mean because stories and scripts evolve you know even through pre-production was he trying to introduce an element and somebody saw it and was like no no we're not doing that no you're off get out now
0: See, I kind of don't think that that's the case because for one thing, if you look at all of his other stuff, like it's all there. I mean, that was totally an into darkness even, you know. There's always sort of mm-hmm. like um someone on the inside is corrupt and destroying something and that 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 they've built up. I mean, it's it's in all of his movies. And I think you kind of know what you're getting when you hire Orsi.
1: However, is it possible that Abram's was as much as of a beating as he took uh from from some fans is it possible that abrams was the uh sanity influence and maybe the the rest of the team as well was more of a a tempering influence because into darkness you know does open up exploring some really interesting thoughts about you know the nature of war and uh, you know, what's a justified strike and drone? You know, uh, there, there are a whole bunch of interesting themes that are explored, but they're not full on conspiracy theorists, you know, like sitting down talking to the truther kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Is it possible without the tempering influences around him, he was starting to go off the rails? There was nobody to keep him within the lines. And that's what made Paramount nervous. I guess
0: that's a possibility. Um, from the word that's been coming out and stuff that uh, people like Badass Digest uh, and Devin Farage over there have been um, uncovering, it sounds like there were problems with the script and and there was uh, uh, story stuff that the um, studio was not exactly happy with. And that was sort of like the thing that pushed this over the edge. But I don't think that it's necessarily... Going into the, you know, we don't want Roberto Orsi to start spouting his crazy talk here stuff. I think it was more of just like, the story isn't working as a
1: story kind of thing. Well, it would be refreshing to see a studio pull the plug on something before <laughs> making the movie that was the bad idea. So, bravo, Paramount. Good for you. <laughs> You're learning.
0: And, and the question now is, are they starting from scratch? are they just doing another draft of the script which already exists because the time wise it does not seem like they have time to start from scratch but like ferracci said that they are starting from sc- scratch or they're at least throwing out the script that that does exist now whatever that means but there's other stuff which to me suggests that that's not the case you know one thing is that you know they said that orsi was staying on as producer and, you know, what does that mean exactly? That could mean anything from he is producing the movie and he's going to be there on set every day to uh, they're giving him a paycheck and just telling him to walk away. You the know?
1: Roddenberry treatment on the movies after the motion <laughs> picture. He was technically a producer. Exactly.
0: So, but Orsi sent out a tweet yesterday, which I thought was very telling, where someone was said, you know, well, who are they going to get now? And Orsi said, well, that's what me and the other producers have to figure out. So it sounds like he is still involved in the process.
1: Well, that lends, cred- that lends credence to your idea that maybe he stepped back. Maybe he saw it coming and he said, I just, you know, maybe he, that would be refreshing too for somebody to be in a position like that and say, I can't handle this. I mm-hmm. have to step back. I, ca- I can't do this. If that's the case, then, I, you know, Big old round of applause for him for being a mature enough adult to say, "I this isn't me. I can't do it." So, yeah, yeah. you know, good for him, right? If that's the case, yeah. But you know, I don't know what to believe. I'm Ro- I'm Romulan ambassador nonplus. I don't know what to believe.
0: <laughs> yes, and now you know when when Mike Fleming over at Deadline uh, broke the story, he said that there is a short list of directors that the studio has. And one of the names on the short list is Edgar Wright, who, of course, directed Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and Scott Pilgrim,
1: and got canned from Ant Man.
0: Did he get canned or did he walk away? I he think he got canned. Perhaps he was fired. I don't know. <laughs> I think it was. I think it was kind of a mutual thing. But regardless, the idea of him leaving a studio project, which he had been working on only to be replaced by someone else and now coming in to replace someone else on a studio project. That's kind of weird. Although yeah. if Roberto Orsi is involved and if Orsi is the one who's saying, please, Edgar Wright, can you bail me out? Then maybe, you know, maybe it's, that's
1: good. I think they have better choices out there, myself.
0: It, it it could be. And, you know, even though everyone is saying because of this article, like he's on the short list. Twitter has become sort of this weird place where you can kind of read what, kind of what you know celebrities or whatever are saying to each other, yeah. and read between the lines to figure out what's true and what's not. Like I remember this happened uh, when uh, the rumor came out that Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz were writing this movie Star Trek Thirteen, and a lot of people were like, "Really, really, they are." And then it turned out not to be true. And there were some tweets that were going around with them where uh, their friends were kind of saying, like, wow, look at all these people who are talking about this thing which might happen. That's so weird, you know. And then it didn't happen. And I kind of see the same thing happening here. I don't know if you saw it, but Ryan Johnson sent out a tweet the other day where he said, um, Edgar Wright is on my short list of uh, a list directors to wash my car next weekend (laughs) and um edgar wright responded i'm in you know (laughs) and it's like that to me suggests like ryan johnson probably knows he probably you know called up edgar wright or texted him and be like is it true are you doing star trek 13 and edgar wright's like no they have you know and and ryan johnson's like oh yeah of course a studio would say i want edgar wright to direct my big movie sure but that doesn't mean it's gonna happen you know so i don't know then again he he is very friendly with bad robot he does have the simon pegg connection there
1: he is a star trek fan yeah he's not doing anything else right now right (laughs) apparently he he is He is free and uh, undoubtedly, you know, because there is a cascade effect from this sort of thing. Like because Ryan Johnson's working on episodes eight and nine, you know, there's going to be a rush from studios. They they understand the significance of getting a good name attached as a director now. Yeah. Audiences are much more attentive to the name of a director in in current times than they ever have been. And so Paramount would be wise to float out as many names as possible that would be uh, sort of chum for the fanboys to go nuts about so that they could figure out who to make the biggest offer to.
0: Right. A lot of people think that's actually what happened um, way, way back at the beginning, because I I was looking at this. I was trying to piece this together the other day Um, when John Chu was mentioned I don't know if you remember this, but John Chu was mentioned as a possible director for Star Trek 13. And everyone went freaking nuts over that. John Chu is the guy who directed more recently, you know, G.I. Joe Retaliation, but before that, he uh, was the director of Step Up to the Streets.
1: Well, at least we'd have some nice dance moves from Kirk. That... Hey.
0: You know what? I will defend that movie till the day I die. That movie is awesome. Um, he also directed Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, which oh, well, wow. is also, by the way, like I watched that movie because I, I, I was getting paid to, and I knew nothing about Justin Bieber, and I sat there, and I'm like... This is a good movie. This is a really well-made documentary concert film thing. Um, <laughs> <he's> <laughs> Did a you good watch the 3D version though? I need to know I, I, how it. I is absolutely a 3D watched camera. the 3D version. Okay, it's good. the only way to do it, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he he would be you know he he would be an interesting choice. But that's what you know. Back when when that happened, you know, uh, I remember reading that and thinking like, I can't see that working. And sure enough. Everyone was like, no! <laughs> and, like, he tweeted, like, wow, there's a lot of interesting opinions going around today, you sure, know? Sure, and And, and there's, this, like, later on it came out that, you know, what it looks like happened in that scenario was that the studio, like, put that name out there basically just to see what would happen <laughs> if that's what they did, you know? But, you know, what you had, okay, J.J. Abrams, John M. Chu... Mm-hmm. then Rupert Wyatt. Uh, oh, that's right. Joe Cornish. Yeah. And then Roberto Orsi. and now Edgar Wright. These are the names. I'm dying to know who else is on that short list. But mm. but let's 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 I'm going to ask you this question because this is what the question that I've been asking everybody. Okay. First off, in the real world, if you're a studio head, and you know that people like J.J. Abrams are not available because they're making Star Wars, who would you get to direct Star Trek Thirteen?
1: If I'm a studio exec, the first name that comes to mind is Nicholas Meyer. Strictly because it'll get the fanboys excited again.
0: It's true that it would get the fanboys excited again, but would it get the... I mean... I guess yeah, I mean, that's 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 valid. And I've 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 said that too. I know there's a lot of people online who are like, bring back Jonathan Frakes. There's like a whole.
1: A whole I'd be would uh, be down with Frakes too, though. Although he does have a big strike against him with insurrection, but you know what? That's not all his fault. And there was some great, uh, there were some great shot compositions in that film. And so I'll I- give him a break for that.
0: I I had been saying Frakes all the way back from when they were first, you know, trying to get people because I'm like, if you've got people like Roberto Orsi, who's, you know, really going to be handling the film from like kind of a showrunner perspective and and all this stuff, like it feels like a television production. It feels like the way that those next generation movies were made and next generation movies did not hire auteurs to make their movies. They hired TV directors. They hired Jonathan Frakes. And everything like that. And it's like Jonathan Frakes is a television director. He's still, he's doing that new librarian show because he made all of those terrible, terrible librarian movies <laughs> except for the first one, which yeah. was not was terrible but was not made by Frakes. But I'm like, he's he would be perfect because he is a TV guy. He would slot in very well. If you're looking for the bad robot equivalent of Jonathan Frakes, it's Jack Bender. That was my, oh, yeah. my big right. prediction for who they would get. And now I, it's actually still now, I think, assuming that Edgar Wright is not the guy, I wouldn't be surprised if Jack Bender fell in there. Although at this point, I that's think they might need pull. a name.
1: That, you know? no, that, that's a great name to pull, man. I, I give you a lot of credit for that. That didn't even occur to me, but once you said it, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, okay. Especially yeah, since like, he was
0: like the guy who, he was originally going to direct the Jack Ryan movie and stuff which is paramount and everything, yeah. it just seemed to make sense. Here's one which I said back in the day, which I, I now, because now all of this is like back, it's come full circle. One which would seem to make a lot of sense in a lot of ways, even though you hear it and it sounds crazy, Kenneth Branagh.
1: Ooh, wow, Branagh, really? Because
0: he's doing these studio movies now. He just did Jack Ryan for Paramount, starring Chris Pine. Yeah. You know? You can stick him in there. He's a name. Oof.
1: Wow. Could you... Well, the thing is, he brings some of that Shakespearean cachet that made Myers' movies work so well. And while the first Thor movie fell apart at the end, it was... It, it was pretty well put together for the first two acts, at least.
0: Uh, yeah, I like it. I, I like that movie. Um, I like Jack Ryan, too. I don't know if you I saw I didn't it. see the Jack Ryan one. It's not bad.
1: I w- I'm still so mad about the Ben Affleck Jack Ryan movie that it was. it's going to take <laughs> like years that for that, that to come back. It's <laughs> sort of like I couldn't see a Tommy Lee Jones movie for for years after Batman Forever. I had to forgive him. Um. Yeah, okay. But I, that's could, not... I could see that. But that's not, like, Kenneth Branagh's
0: not, like, I'm not saying, like, I want to see Kenneth Branagh. He would be my first choice. It's, like, that, like, looking at it in terms of, like, odds and predictions. See, if, they, if they were, would if they were
1: to bring him in, I want them to do something huge. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 if they bring in somebody like Branagh, that's somebody that I want to see, that's an indication to me that the scope of the movie is so huge and at least the themes are so large that they feel they need somebody that can get really dramatic chops out of the actors. Which is not a knock on Abrams because I think he gets good performances out of people. It, it's more they're looking for somebody that can really, you know, there they're, they're going to be some real, you know, punch in the gut sort of emotional scenes in the movie. Which is what I'm hoping for. I, I would really like to see that in, in Star Trek 13.3.2. <laughs> See, to me, I'm just looking
0: at it more as, like, from the, you know, sort of, like, numbers standpoint. And it's like, he made Thor for them. He made Jack Ryan for them. This seems like a good fit with studio being comfortable with this guy's performance. Him having a name and, you know, sort of the marketability of that, putting the fans at ease and everything like that. Even though I had just thinking about this now after having thought about it before... I'm gonna say now, if it's not Edgar Wright, you know, if there isn't something actually brewing in that scenario, then Kenneth Branagh is my prediction for who they get. Okay. But in terms of who I think they should get, under real-world scenarios, Rupert Wyatt, I think, is kind of a perfect choice.
1: Okay. You know, I can't. I can't fault that. We, can't we've fault seen that at
0: all. what he does with a classic science fiction property. Uh, updating it for the modern audience, and yet still being true to the essence of the original and uh satisfying fans you know in both ways and uh, uh yeah I, I think that that he would be sort of a a, a perfect fit for this, but now, with no restrictions <laughs> if Star Trek is the movie. And there's anyone in the world who is willing to say, like, I'm going to leave whatever I'm doing and start working on this thing right now. Because, yeah, (laughs) the one person who you would kill to see make a Star Trek movie, who would it be?
1: I'll resist my impulse to troll everybody listening and say George Lucas and instead go with my real shoot for the sky guy is Christopher Nolan. OK, yeah, I, I would love to see his take on Star Trek, like especially after Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bring it, man. Like, you know, space. <laughs> All right. I'm good with you. Bring it, you know, and, and you're more you know, you're obviously with something that's a little more linear. Let's give him something like that. Sure. And who would your choice be?
0: Uh, the same choice that I have for any movie ever. <laughs> Paul Thomas
1: Anderson. <laughs> without Whoa, Without hey, a doubt. Let me pick myself up there. <laughs> That's a shocker. That is a shocker right there.
0: Yes. Although I'd be totally okay with Christopher Nolan. If they said that, I'd be like, oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Now, but... see, the, the thing is, I think I have even that little safety valve. If they were to come out and they were to say, you know what? Paul Thomas Anderson agreed to this. Like, I'd be on the floor. It would be like an aneurysm. I'd be like, I, like, I'd be... I would be comatose for like six weeks because I'd be like, this is too impossibly good to be true. That would like, be fantastic. I, like I
0: know what my reaction, because like, <laughs> there have been things like that, nothing of that scale, but there have been things like that which have happened. And I know like what I do in those scenarios, which is I read it and then I <laughs> jump up. And then just start pacing and thinking about who I can call as quickly as I can. And it's usually yeah. someone like Max. And I'm like, they they just said that Paul Thomas Harrison is directing a new Star Trek movie? And then he's like, yeah, so what? And then I'm like, isn't that the best news ever? And he's like, I, um, whatever, I don't care. You know, that's exactly how that would all go down. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't think it'll ever happen because he won't want to do it. It doesn't
1: really seem to be Anderson's milieu to uh, go for a Star Trek movie. It's too bad. It's yeah. really too bad. Oh, well. It, it, would, it would be interesting, to say the least, because I'd really, <laughs> I mean, God, you instantly go to, well, what it would be like, you know, Khan and Kirk having a face, you know, a face off at, at some point, have it be like plain view. <laughs> Again, there will
0: be con You're like, I drink your milkshake. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god, that would be so awesome! <laughs> and then, like, just visually, he could bring it back to like the Boogie Nights Magnolia <sighs> style yeah. with the, that 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 camera running through those corridors. Oh my god. Well, you that explore, would
1: be just you a... you know maybe Kirk gets get kicked out of Starfleet and he has to pick up another career and it's sort of mm-hmm. like a Dirk Diggler arc right there. You yeah and that.
0: and then not to mention the fact that he loves lens flares. I oh, keep yeah. telling oh, yeah. anyone who's like, "Oh my god, there's so many lens flares in Star Trek 09." Watch Punch-Drunk Love, dudes. Okay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Touche.
0: Yeah. So I, that's my pick, but whatever. If you want to hear some more discussion on this, check out uh, Monday's episode of Standard Orbit, where Drew and myself discuss this for the entire episode. So, it's a
1: good. It's a yeah. it's a it's a real good.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking about in the heat of the night and Star Trek thirteen this week, but that's not all that we're talking about here on Trek FM. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network previously on trek.fm standard orbit and and so i was biased against it. it even when i started buying the the two disc collector's edition dvds i avoided buying any of the even number numbered movies odd numbered movies earl gray like uh, like they stated in the end of the movie you know they thought he'd outlive all of them and i'm like yeah that's what should have happened we should have seen data like in the you know, 26th century, like data 5.0, whatever we call them. To the journey! You don't know if she's gonna stab him or smooch him. Oh, she's gonna smooch him, of course. After dessert. <laughs> After dessert. We all know
1: what dessert means. Warp 5. Along with technology and along with trying to study the origins of a lot of different things that we've come to know in, in the original series and beyond, it's hard to try and deconstruct it without insulting what has come in all of the things that we know of being Vulcan mind-meld. Mission Log, a Ronberry Star Trek podcast. And my thought was, in the next scene, Crusher should have the body of the dead Klingon sitting on the back of her toilet holding a candle. (laughs) You know, (laughs) (laughs) what she would only get to do after Lieutenant Yara's gotten to hold the dead Klingon up to her ear to see if she can hear the ocean.
0: Commentary, Trek stars.
1: Everything
0: you would imagine would be in an opening title sequence for this show is in there i think the shot that really does it for me the shot that really pulls everything together is when he dunks the basketball <laughs> melodic tricks. so we do know an awful lot of people get associated with vic fontaine he name drops to the nth degree about all the famous people that he and one of whom is frank sinatra Axinar, the official podcast
1: When there's a possibility for something to be misunderstood or um, not clearly explained, it can potentially open up a big hole for a show because people can end up going down a path that was actually not what somebody wanted to be done. The 602 Club.
0: What are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because they just do it better? Uh, First of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, uh, It makes me feel sad for the rest. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows to get in on the Daily Trek Talk. We have new shows for you every day, and you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, um, anywhere else that you, you do your podcasting. You can get it wherever you're listening to this thing, undoubtedly. You can go to the website uh, and get stuff there. You can you know, download episodes directly or stream them directly from the website. They're all over the place, so be sure to check it out. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring commentary, Trek stars, to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week from classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World. Audible has something for everyone. They've even got uh, some audio dramas like Blacklisted, um, which is written by Tony Khan. And the first episode of Blacklisted, Hollywood on Trial... Uh, is narrated by Tony Kahn, Rob Liebman, and Carol O'Connor. Um, here's the description. Uh, the House of Un-American Activities Committee opens its stormy hearings into communist influence on Hollywood in October 1947. Ten leftist screenwriters denounce the investigation and are sentenced to jail for contempt. Gordon Kahn, a well-known enemy of HUAC, escapes a similar fate when the committee suspends its hearings before calling him to testify. Blacklisted and under FBI surveillance, Khan sells his Beverly Hills house and moves his family to Studio City. As fear of criticizing the committee spreads throughout Hollywood, Khan fights publicly for the freedom of the Hollywood Ten. And you can get this audio drama for free since you listen to commentary Trek stars. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting, commentary, Trek stars, and trek.fm. Another way that you can support us is by becoming a patron on the network. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's patreo dot com slash trekfm. And you can uh, donate to the network and get some prizes. It's kind of like Kickstarter, but on a monthly basis. So you can get, like, bonus content uh, or wallpapers or credits on the shows or, uh, you know, the ability to sit in on our, our planning sessions and and all that stuff. There's some cool stuff right there. And on the website, patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll also find um, a list of, of all of the things which we are going to use your money for to support the network. So go over there, check it out, support us, uh, get some bonus content. We're going to be providing some bonus content uh, for you guys in the near future. Um, uh, And, uh, yeah, it's it's fun times. Good stuff. If you'd like to contact us, uh, you can send us an email at comtrackstars at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter at comtrackstars. John, where can people find you on the Internet?
1: Well, you can find me uh, fighting for the uh, values of truth, justice, and uh, the international way on Twitter at KesselJunkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And uh, you can find me uh, also on another podcast called Words with Nerds, which drops on Thursdays on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah.
0: Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me right here on Trek FM doing Standard Orbit with Drew. So be sure to go over there on, on Monday and check out our discussion about uh, Star Trek 13's directorial situation. And you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com along with Max and our friend Brandon where we do Commentary Track Stars off-topic uh, each and every week. All right. Well, that's it for In the Heat of the Night. And next week, we will be back to recap Jerry Taylor's work in television and uh, talk about um, some of her stuff beyond that as well.